This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Take your Bibles uh, or your phones, your devices, uh, however you access the Word, and open them to the book of Ruth. It may take you a little bit to find Ruth. Uh, it has four fairly short chapters. Uh, you'll need to kind of, you'll have to find it nestled between Judges and 1 Samuel. Now, I've told you before that the chapter divisions in the Bible were not inspired by God. Those who took the original scrolls, uh, you know, the, the, the parchments, translated them, compiled them, and organized them into a readable form in the Bible were the ones who determined where each chapter would begin and end. So, you know, I've explained this before, so whatever you see the chapter beginnings and endings, that's not inspired by God. That's just who those who compiled it in readable form, they determined that. And, and I know my opinion doesn't matter, I'm just an average Joe. Um, I probably would have ended chapter 1 with verse 18. Uh, to me, that seems to be the logical transition into a new thought, and then I would have made verse 19 the first verse of chapter 2. They didn't ask my opinion. But anyway, since they didn't listen to me, go to Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. I still think it would have been better to have said Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. But go to Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. And, and that you're weary of my worthless opinion. Um, let's begin our time by asking a couple of questions. First question. Do you believe in luck? We say, well, I got lucky and just made it home before the storm hit and it started raining cats and dogs. Have you ever wondered what that means? What does it mean to rain cats and dogs? And I've, I've actually researched that. shows I have way too much time on my hands. But um, from what I understand, there are a couple of different theories. One was that uh, in these little villages, it would, you'd have such a big rain and it would flood everything and you'd have cats and dogs that were just rushing down you know, washing down in flooded, flood waters down the street. And so they said, they would say, well, it started raining cats and dogs, uh, whatever that means. Or I was doing 15 miles over the speed limit, but I got lucky because the trooper already had someone else pulled over, and so he didn't pay attention to me. Or I got lucky and happened to get the very last package of toilet paper at the store. You might have said that a year ago <clears throat> during the toilet paper crisis when toilet paper was more precious than gold. And who would have ever thought that your pastor would deliver rolls of toilet paper to needy families? Um, I, I've delivered toys, I've delivered money, food, different things to needy families. Now I can put on my resume that I've gone to some of your homes and I've delivered toilet paper. Or how about this true story? that we might call luck. Not too long ago, I was doing some chainsawing out of the farm. And, and I'm not a professional lumberjack, but I, um, I, I have several chainsaws, and I've definitely spent plenty of hours using the chainsaw. But anyway, I pulled a rookie mistake. Um, and, and the only way to describe this mistake is dumb and dumber. <laughs> After I finished cutting a log... For some unknown and very dumb reason, I rested the chainsaw on my leg. You know, which wasn't a big deal, except that the chain was still moving. And, and I know it wasn't smart. You don't have to lecture me. 
But what happened was that the chain grabbed my pants and completely shredded my pants and uh, left me immodest. Uh, But would you believe that the chain did not touch my flesh? And most of us in telling a story like that would say, I was so lucky that I didn't have a serious injury. But here's the first question. Do you believe in luck? Now, I think most of us would say, oh, come on, Trussell. That's just an expression. You know, we, we know there's no such thing as luck. And, and, and I buy that explanation, even though some of us, I think, really believe that bad luck has a way of tracking us down. Okay, next question. Do you believe in coincidence? You know, we say, well, I was on my way to Nevada and my car broke down. But just as I coasted my car over to the shoulder of the road, would you believe who happened to come along, Randy Bland, and he was driving his car hauler and it was empty and being the good guy that he is, he stopped and winched my car onto his car hauler, took it, dropped it off at the mechanic. And we say, what a coincidence that Randy came by right at that moment. Or, or you thought, you know, I, I didn't know how I was going to pay my rent, but the day that it was due, out of the clear blue, I got a refund check from the doctor's office where they said I had overpaid. What a coincidence. Or, or two or three weeks ago, true story, when we were at the Creation Museum in Kentucky, guess who we ran into? Phil and Kim Collingsworth. You know, the Collingsworth family that we love to have to our church and sing and they come every couple of years ago. They were not singing. They were just there. And we had a nice little reunion with our friends from way back in college. We say, what a coincidence. Speaking of coincidences, are, are you tracking? You're going to have to really listen or, or you're going to get lost on this one. Did you know, and, and many of you would know this, that the King James Version of the Bible was published in 1611. How many of you knew that? A lot of you knew that. 1611. Which some of you didn't know this, is the same year that Shakespeare turned 46. You say, so what? Well, listen. In Psalm 46 of the King James Bible that was published when Shakespeare was 46, the 46th word from the beginning of Psalm 46 is shake, and the 46th word from the end of the psalm is spear. I lost some of you. Shakespeare. What a coincidence. And by the way, you can fact check me on this. And if you need to go through that again, then I'll, I'll do it after church. But, so we live in a world where we ascribe luck or coincidence to a lot of different happenings. But do you know how many times the words luck or coincidence are found in the Bible? I'm going to give you one guess. How many? Zero. Or you know how to say zero in Spanish? Settle. Not one. Do you know how to say not one in Spanish? Ni uno. Not one event in all of Scripture is ever spoken of as having come about by luck or coincidence. But, as we get to our lesson today, even though the Bible doesn't use the words luck or coincidence, it almost seems to involve a little bit of both. In fact, one translation of the Bible says, and it happened. Uh, another one says, as it turned out. It's almost like it was saying that there was a little bit of luck or a little bit of coincidence involved. But as we study this lesson, we will see that what looks like 
coincidence or luck is really a great big God orchestrating events that the people involved in this story didn't understand just as many times God orchestrates events in our lives that we don't understand. But these events many times change the course of our lives, sometimes change the course of history. I was thinking about this Friday, just a couple of days ago. Thursday of this past week was my in-law's 60th wedding anniversary. And uh, they're watching, uh, I don't know if they watch early service or late service, but they tune in to make sure I don't say anything bad about them. But, um, but my wife was in Michigan for a work-related project, and she kind of planned it that way and then went over to spend a few extra days with them for the celebration. That, that's where she is. She's actually going to leave later on today and, and fly back. Well, last minute, I cleared my calendar Left Thursday morning about 4.45 in the morning. I drove nearly 12 hours. Got there just in time for the evening celebration. It, it surprised Faith. I didn't tell her. I didn't tell anybody there. In fact, they were in the backyard just kind of getting ready for the celebration. And I walked up there and I said, is there anything I can do to help? <laughs> Faith screamed. I thought she was going to pass out. I almost had to call 911. Uh, and, but, but anyway, just totally shocked her. Shocked my, my in-laws. And, um, you know, my in-laws still call me the black sheep of the family for some reason. I can't imagine why. Um, Then the next day, that was Thursday. Then the next day, Friday morning, I left Michigan at 3.40 in the morning, drove the nearly 12 hours back home. Uh, But during my 24 hours on the road in in that 36-hour period, I, I did a lot of thinking. That's all I could do was just think. And it occurred to me, knowing what I was going to be speaking on today, it occurred, it occurred to me how God orchestrated things in my life. You know, faith parents were married 60 years ago uh, Thursday. They're, they're in Michigan, Petersburg, Michigan. I, I came along two years later, almost two years later, born in a remote third world country in the Andean range of South America, 6,000 miles away from them. And how in the world did their youngest daughter get so lucky? I know there's no such thing as luck, but you know what I mean. Actually, I always said, you know, I I outkicked my coverage, and uh, how did I get so lucky to find her? Here we are separated by so many miles. Well, again, there was no luck. There was no coincidence. God orchestrated this event. Now, the book of Ruth is, is written in totally different form than most of the other books in the Bible. The book of Ruth is, is written in, in narrative form because it's a story. It, it's a, a love story, a true love story. And so I want to give our lesson in narrative form. And in that narrative, I'll include some background information. I will explain some ancient traditions and give some added insight from the original Hebrew text. And then right at the very end of the lesson, as we come in for our landing, I want to try to drive home some lessons that hopefully we can uh, chew on for the rest of the week. Now, the setting for our lesson is that early in Ruth chapter 1, Uh, A man by the name of Elimelech during a famine moved his wife Naomi and his two sons away from Bethlehem to a very wicked and pagan country called Moab. In fact, let me just show you a map here so you know Bethlehem is right there, right there. Here is Moab. So it's about 50 miles or so that they, they traveled by foot. Now, moving the family away wasn't a sin. It actually made good sense to get them out of a famine stricken area to an area where there was food. But But moving them to Moab was the problem because the Moabites uh, were not in good favor with God. They they were descendants of Lot. They worshipped idols. They had been a prickly thorn in the sight of Israel. 
In fact, there are, there are a couple of really obscure scriptures, which I almost would guarantee that most of you have never noticed in the Bible. But these are scriptures that tell us how God felt about the wickedness of Moab. For example, in Psalm 68, in the King James Version, it says, Moab is my wash pot. Um, so just kind of picture this. Picture a, a wash pot that maybe you've uh, washed dirty dishes in it or maybe even washed yourself. Moab is my wash pot. Or another translation puts the same scripture this way, uh, New Living Translation, Moab will become my lowly servant. Uh, and, and then another scripture that probably most of us have never noticed that shows the seriousness of what Eliminech d- did is, uh, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. It says, no Ammonite, or here it is, or Moabite, or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the 10th generation. So for 10 generations, God's people were not to associate with this nation. But Elimelech did not pay any attention to God. And and the results were tragic, which leads me to say for us, anytime we do not pay attention to God's warnings and God's word, the results will be tragic. And in in, in our lesson, the first tragic happening is that shortly after arriving in Moab, Elimelech died. Uh, Think about it. He's a husband, a father, and the sole breadwinner. Talk about devastating for Naomi as she was left as a single mom in a wicked foreign country. The second tragedy is that the two sons ended up marrying pagan idol-worshiping non-believers. And even though Naomi and, and Elimelech had gone against God's will in moving to Moab, yet they were still trying to follow God, Jehovah. So having the two sons marry idol-worshippers had to have broken their hearts. But then to top things off, the third tragedy the two sons died, leaving poor Naomi all alone with her two daughters-in-law in this foreign country. Well, after the death of her two sons, she began to realize there was no reason for her to stay in Moab. So she decided to pack her bags, head back to home to Bethlehem. And, and so she went to her two daughters-in-law and told them goodbye. One daughter-in-law named Orpah, um, and her name, interestingly, means back of your neck. So if you name your kid Orpah, you're saying back of your neck. When Naomi told Orpah she was leaving and that she needed to go back to her family, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, walked away back to her idol-worshiping family, never to be heard from in Scripture again. But the other daughter-in-law named Ruth, which, you know what Ruth means? Friend. Friend. Said, Naomi, maybe even called her, Mom. I want to go with you. And she made that classic statement that has been echoed down through the ages in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. I will go wherever you go. Remember that scripture? Live wherever you live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I will die where you die. Be buried there. So Naomi and Ruth set out together and made, let's go to the next slide here, uh, made the 50-mile trek from Moab back to Bethlehem by foot. Well, after several days of walking, the two ladies arrived in Bethlehem, more than likely exhausted from walking in that Middle Eastern heat. Now, some scholars say that at that time, Bethlehem would have been a small village with a population of no more than 200 people. 
And being such a small village, when, when Naomi and Ruth walked into Bethlehem, this became a major event. Listen how the Bible documents this in Ruth 1.19. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town, entire town, was stirred by their arrival. Just like the entire town yesterday was stirred by the fact that the Optimist Club, they were selling corn dogs. I waited in line. I think all of you were there. Uh, But the entire town was stirred by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. And, And try to picture this. More than likely, Bethlehem for years had talked and probably gossiped. That's what small communities do about Naomi's situation. You know, just as a small town gossip takes place in our community... Bethlehem was probably abuzz with people saying, can you believe that Elimelech took his family to live in enemy Moab? Or or did you hear that the boys married pagan girls? Uh, Did you hear that the two boys, Malan and Kilion, died? Bless their hearts. But all of a sudden, all 200 residents come to attention. They can't believe their eyes. Here comes Naomi walking into town. They had left town as a family of four, but here she is returning alone. Oh, but wait a minute. She wasn't alone. Who's that with her? And what probably really got their tongues to wagging is when they saw that walking beside Naomi was a foreigner. I mean, can you believe Naomi had the gall to bring that foreigner from the group of people with probably darker skin than the typical Israelite, and from this group of people that God called his washpot and lowly servant, who were not, to be, uh, uh, not allowed to be in the assembly for ten generations. And that one cell phone tower in Bethlehem immediately went on overload, as every member of the Bethlehem community had to call someone and gossip. I actually made up that part, just as, in case you didn't know. But as I studied this account, what really stood out to me was that Initially, it appears that nobody in Bethlehem came to help. Now, you would think that since several of them were probably related to Naomi, that her relatives would have come up to her and said, Welcome back. I'm so sorry for your losses. You've lost your husband. You've lost your two sons. Naomi, you've been through it. Why don't you, and and, and I assume this is maybe your daughter-in-law, Why don't you come and stay in my house for a while until you can find your own place to live? But Scripture doesn't record any of that. It appears that not one person offered to help them even with food. Question. How many times have we seen people go through hard times because we put them in the category of losers? You know you've called certain people losers, haven't you? I have too. And because we've classified them as losers, we felt justified for not showing them any compassion. But could I remind you, as God looks down on our community, He sees no losers. Regardless of their lack of morals, Regardless of their drug usage, regardless of their laziness, God sees no losers. He only sees people that he sent his son to earth to die for, to rescue them. All of them are people he loves. He sees no losers. 
And that sometimes is hard to swallow because these people that we call losers, you call losers, are the ones that Jesus is willing to leave. You know, the 90 of us that are saved, that are in church today, Jesus leaves us to go look for that wayward person that we call a loser. Just a little convicting thought to insert here. Well, even though the scripture doesn't give any details, I I wonder if Naomi didn't take Ruth to the vacant house that they had moved out of when they relocated to Moab. I don't know. They did. No doubt the house was probably in disrepair. No maintenance had been done on it for a number of years. It was in sad shape, but perhaps they tried to patch up the holes, uh, the dirt walls. And once they were somewhat settled, Ruth, the daughter-in-law, realized that if they were going to eat, well, it was going to be up to her. And and Ruth chapter 2 verse 2 says, well, one day Ruth said to Naomi, let me go out into the fields and to gather leftover grain behind anyone who will let me do it. And Naomi said, all right, my daughter, go ahead. Now, as I want us to clearly understand right up front that as Ruth headed out to work from sunup to sundown, the very best that Ruth could hope for as she gathers grain is to come home with about two handfuls of grain. Let me just illustrate it, and thanks to one of our farmers, Kent Bell, for providing us with some wheat here today. And uh, thank God for all of our farmers. Let's give our farmers a hand. We don't talk about them much. But anyway, this right here is about all that Ruth would have probably come home with. Right there. And do you know why? Because I read after one source, they said the majority of grain that they would get would be a single grain scattered out on the ground. So they would get one grain, one kernel at a time. And what hit me this past week is that Naomi and Ruth really had no future. Uh, The the barley harvest, the wheat harvest were about a month each, and so Ruth could maybe eke out a living for maybe two months at best. But after the harvest was over, their limited food supply would end. Now, let me stop right here and ask, where was God in all of this? I mean, Ruth has made one of the most powerful statements of faith in all of the Scripture. You know, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. What a powerful statement of faith. Where was God in all of this? Well, remember for Naomi and Ruth, and also remember for you, for you, sometimes God is doing His greatest work when things look the absolute worst. And let's get a glimpse of how God was working in this time. As Ruth went out that first day, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, so Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, you know, it kind of sounds like luck, but it wasn't, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. So let me explain this. In Israel, several clans made up each tribe, and then 12 tribes made up the nation of Israel, but a field that to us would look like one big continuous field was owned, uh, that, that was owned by the same person was actually a patchwork of interconnected fields owned by a variety of different families. 
And outsiders like Ruth would be unaware of where the one field would start, the other would end, because it looked like one field. Stones were the only way you could distinguish property lines. And so Ruth, for Ruth to just happen upon the field of Boaz, a relative of her late father-in-law, was huge. Now, let's pause here again. We keep stopping. But where does the guidance of God begin with Ruth? Did it begin right here when she stepped into that right field? Or did the guidance of God begin when she decided to come with Naomi instead of staying with her own pagan family? Maybe maybe God's guidance began when she decided to marry Naomi's son? How far back was the hand of God leading Ruth? And, And for you, how far back have you sensed God's leadership in your life. Well, one of the truths that I want to emphasize is that God's plan for our lives begins long before we're ever born. Long before you made your first scream coming out of your mother's womb. Because in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, it says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. (laughs) Before you were born, talking about Jeremiah, but about us. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So God was saying, Jeremiah, long before you were ever born, I had plans for your life. Well, back to gathering grain. Ruth arrived at the field to gather some grain for herself and Naomi and and Israel's law made provision for the poor because in those days, of course, there was no social security, no unemployment, uh, no stimulus checks or anything like that. The harvest was done by hand, and a good field worker would rarely leave much grain. So the provision in the law was that the corners of the fields were to be left unharvested. And you can read more about this in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24. Uh, the, The field workers also were to only go through the field once. They couldn't comb over it again to pick up the grain that had been dropped. And this was all to help the poor. That was kind of their social security at that point. Uh, But even with these provisions, it was tough to get much grain because, uh, again, the majority of grain would not be on stocks where you could take a whole bunch. The majority of grain would be just picking up one at a time. Well, as Ruth went to the field, she probably had been coached by Naomi on what was acceptable in this culture. She had to follow a certain distance behind the harvesters. So here's the sequence of of events in the field. Ruth arrived at the field. She had to ask for permission to glean. And in the Hebrew culture, this would mean that, that, that she would have worked the field making little piles of grain, probably about like this, little piles of grain, Um, and, and then having to get permission, not taking anything off uh, until permission was granted to take the grain. Well, the boss finally arrived to give permission. His name was Boaz. And when Boaz arrived to the field, he asked, who is this woman? Boaz knew she was not one of the locals. I mean, in a small community, everybody knew everybody and uh, Boaz knew all the locals. Well, when he says, who is this lady, the foreman that that was there in in verse six says, she's the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. Now, now Boaz, no doubt has heard 
the, the, the gossip there and, and has heard about Ruth and her dedication to Naomi. And, and he was impressed that this Moabitess woman would opt to leave her own people to go with her mother-in-law. So how did Boaz react to this foreigner working in his field? In verse 8, so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and following along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. In other words, Boaz created a situation where Ruth was equal to the other workers. He, he insisted that she work with his servant girls and even drink from the workers' water jars. Now, here's what our society would say, and this is probably what some of you are thinking. Well, you know, Boaz found Ruth to be good-looking, attractive, and so good looks get you some extra privileges. And in some cases, that's true. But I don't believe that's the case here, because the Bible says in verse 11 that Boaz honored Ruth for three things. One, her kindness to Naomi. Number two, her impressive character. And number three, for her faith in God. And look what else Boaz does. Just in case there might have been some prejudice because of her being a foreigner, he instructed the workers in verse 15, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles. You know, just kind of leave them there for her to pick up. Don't rebuke her. So here in a matter of a few seconds, Ruth went from an outsider who in their minds was a disgusting Moabitess foreigner who had no rights to an insider who had extra privileges. And then in addition to that, in verse 14, Boaz said, hey, Ruth, you can eat with my workers. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. Now, here is my plan. This is Joe Trussell's plan. I think it's an amazing plan. Here it is. I think Boaz needs to hire Ruth as one of the workers. I mean, it'd be win-win. Boaz would get an employee that works hard, has good character. That's kind of hard to find these days. You don't find that much. So it's win for him. But it'd be also win for Ruth because this would be the means of providing for her and her mother-in-law So how many of you would agree with me, hiring Ruth makes good business sense? Anybody going to commit yourself? Well, God had greater plans. You know, sometimes our plans are way below what God has planned for us. And let me explain this from our lesson. The The wage that hired workers would get each day would be about one pound of grain. So I've measured out one pound of grain right here. This would be about the average wage for workers. That's, that's one pound. Now, of course, this right here is what she would have probably gotten. This is two handfuls right here. That's what she would have gotten. So the average wage would have been one pound of grain. If, she, if Boaz would have hired Ruth, she would have walked away with this. Definitely better than this. God's plan is, is, is so amazing. Um, but the King James Version says she didn't come home with this. 
she didn't come home with this. The, the King James Version says she came home with an ephah, which that means about half a bushel, 30 pounds. This right here is 30 pounds. That's about what she went home with right here. Do you see how amazing God's plan is? And, and it would have been so much fun to see Naomi's reaction. You know, Ruth, Ruth, again, should have come home with about four ounces. Four ounces of grain. If lucky, if she'd have been hired, a pound. But can you imagine Naomi's reaction when Ruth walks in and she says, Girl, what's going on here? And um, just amazing how God's plan comes together. But, but that's not all of the good news. Boaz also wanted Ruth to glean or, or pick up grain through the barley harvest as well as the wheat harvest. And, and each harvest was about a month long. So we don't know if Boaz gave Ruth this much grain every day. We don't know. The scripture doesn't say. Um, but, 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 but if he did, it would mean that Ruth would have gone home with a bucket of grain every day for a couple of months. And, and I know we're just speculating here. Don't go and say that this is the way it was. But let, let's just have a little bit of fun here and do the math. Ruth, said, uh, Ruth probably worked six days a week for eight weeks, uh, you know, the two, two seasons there. She could bring home almost 50, 30-pound bags or buckets of grain. That's about 1,500 pounds of grain. If, if Ruth were a hired worker, you know, bringing home this right here every day, you know, she would have brought home about 50 pounds versus 1,500 pounds. So, again, we're speculating but it's fun to speculate. In theory, Boaz could possibly have allowed Ruth to bring home the wages of the equivalent of 30 workers. And for you businessmen and women, since we're just having fun here, since we're letting our imaginations run wild here, let's take it a bit further. Someone said that with 1,500 pounds of grain, not only would these two women have enough to eat for a year, they could have become small business owners and opened up a feed store and sold it to Mike Norman and uh, all of you that have cows. Now, again, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but, but do you see through the life of Ruth how God takes care of his people when they fully surrender and trust God? Okay, let, let's step back a moment and go through some what ifs. What if Ruth would have chosen to stay back in Moab? What if Ruth would have just gone out to another field, not only by Boaz, and picked up Two handfuls of grain each day. Um, what, what if God would have chosen Joe Trussell's business plan and had Boaz hire Ruth on, as an employee? All I can say here is it pays to follow God's plan for your life. Let's wrap things up with uh, some lessons that we can um, draw from this chapter. And, and these are not in any order of importance or occurrence but we get these from Ruth chapter 2. Number one, don't forget that God has a plan for your life. You are not to just float along, be happy-go, what's the word? Lucky, because remember, that's not in the Bible. Um, you're not to just do your own thing and see how much money you can make or how much fun you can have or, or how little you can get by with in life. God has a plan. And so my question here for this, first, for this first part is, 
Do you know God's plan for your life, and are you following God's plan for your life? Do you know it, and are you following it? Number two, um, and, and this one here is kind of a side note, but, but I still think from this account was that uh, we get out of this, and this kind of hurts me because my in-laws are watching this, but I believe God is pleased when we show respect to not only our parents, but to our in-laws. And I know we love to make mother-in-law jokes. I love to harass my mother-in-law. God has called me to do that. But, but to me, it comes across loud and clear in this lesson that God was pleased when Ruth made a choice to honor and take care of Naomi. Number three, and I don't know if any of you need this, but it's a lesson from this story. God looks beyond racial differences. God is very prejudiced religiously, but he's not prejudiced racially, and neither should we be. Ruth, in the minds of most, most Israelites, was a dirty, despicable Moabitess. God looked beyond her race, her color, and into her heart. Number four, God has a heart for those who are needy. You know, you've heard the scripture in James in the New Testament, religion that our God, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. God has a heart for the needy, for the orphans, for the widows, the down and outers. And may we be a church so full of compassion, even for those people that you and I maybe shamefully have called losers. May we have compassion for them. Number five, and this goes against kind of our society today, but hard work is commended. <laughs> Ruth's hard work in the field was noticed, and you know, you've, you've heard the, the news. In fact, yesterday the big news thing was that 10 million jobs are available, 8.2 or 8.4 million unemployed people, and they're not getting connected. And I read the article, and, and there are different reasons. Some are legitimate, but a lot of them is just that people don't want to work. We want a free ride. God says, six days shall you work. And I believe that hard work is commended. Now, there's the other side. You can go way too far. You can be a workaholic. God's not pleased with that. He talks about the day of rest, but hard work is commended. Number six, obedience to God will be rewarded. God does not always make us rich, but he promises blessings to those who follow him. And then number seven, I pray that God will drive into our hearts. God's plan for our lives isn't always clear at the moment. The sorrow you go through, the pain you experience doesn't always make sense at the time. But as that old hymn says, trust and obey, there's no other way. Those dark days many times are those moments when God is doing his greatest work. The darkness of the cross was God's greatest masterpiece. And boy, was it ever dark at the moment. But that's what paved the way for our salvation. So some of the darkest moments that you may go through in your life are paving the way for God to do his greatest work in you and your family. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's look to Jesus. I've been listening, you know, I've got one of these little Alexa devices in my 
office and I'll say, Alexa, play this music or do this or turn off my lights or turn them on or whatever. And, but uh, I, I, I said the other day, uh, Alexa, play from the Collingsworth collection. And, and the song that came up was, I got to get to Jesus. I got to get to Jesus. This morning, could we just get to Jesus? Could we just seek Jesus? Let's quit being just distracted by so much other junk. Let's get to Jesus. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word's so amazing. God, I thank you just that the promises in your word are so true. And Lord, I thank you for this amazing account. It's not a fairy tale. It's not just a story, but it's a historical account. Lord, we thank you for just your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you that during the dark times for Naomi, you were still faithful. Lord, I pray that we would learn our lessons well. Lord, that we would work hard, that we would be compassionate, that we would love the down and outers. Father, that we would trust you, that we would be so consecrated to you. Lord, that we would not get so selfish and think that it's all about us, but Father, that we would be willing to leave the comfort of this church and go out and maybe seek the one that's lost, just as you did. So God, I pray that this week, Lord, I pray that this week we would sense your directing hand, orchestrating our lives, everything that happens, Lord, that you would use that to make us better followers of Jesus and better servants of the people in which we rub shoulders with. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Thanks for coming. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.